The most important thing here is that leaders in any organization are living and breathing the principles of sustainability and, um, and, and, and climate change and talking about them, uh, talking about ethics in the industry such that it becomes normal in an office environment to be able to have these conversations. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. For this episode, we've teamed up with consultant Mott McDonald and the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at Leeds University to explore how engineers can be empowered to practice ethically. You just heard Mike Haig, Mott McDonald's Executive Chair, calling for engineers to exercise their duty of care to society. We'll hear more from Mike later, but before that, we're going back in time to the early 1900s, to an age where the work of engineers was revolutionising economic development and making superpowers of the most technologically advanced countries. Throughout the 19th century, Quebec City competed for trade with Montreal, 300 kilometres to the west. The city's main trade route across the St Lawrence River was unnavigable in winter due to ice flows. Montreal had no such problems, as it had the foresight to build the three-kilometre-long Victoria Bridge in 1859. Over the following years, Montreal benefited from its year-round connectivity and envious Quebec City businessmen could see that a bridge was needed in their city to maintain trade through the harsh winters. And so, they formed the Quebec Bridge Committee in 1887, securing a million dollars in government bond funding and putting into motion a series of events that would indeed deliver a new bridge for Quebec City. But sadly, this investment came with tragic consequences that no one could have foreseen. By 1897, the committee had selected a site and designs had been prepared. Several prominent bridge engineers were consulted and a cantilever structure was selected as the most efficient way to span the river. Cantilever bridges were popular at the end of the 19th century, one of the best known, Scotland's fourth rail bridge. Instead of treating a bridge span as a continuous element supported at each end, it has a rigid fixed connection at just one end. Think of people standing side by side, holding their arms out horizontally and touching fingertips. For these bridge types, structural strength to increase the length of a cantilever is provided by cords in tension above the bridge deck and in compression below. At the time of its design in the early 1900s, the Quebec Bridge was the largest single-span cantilever bridge of all time, with a central span of 1,800 feet, almost 550 metres. Enormous granite piers would anchor it to the ground, and in 1905, work began on the main superstructure. By the early summer of 1907, the steel was taking shape, but not quite the shape expected. The site inspector informed the senior design engineer that steel members on the underside of the bridge had deflected so much that they couldn't be lined up and connected with rivets. Of course, some deflection is anticipated in design and construction, so at first this news was greeted without much concern. The designer assumed there'd been a manufacturing fault and no alarm was raised. But as the cantilever extended further across the river, the stress on the cords continued to increase and so did the deflection. Yet still the engineers assumed the problems originated in the workshop or from poor construction. Not for a moment was it considered that the problem lay with the design itself. As the bridge continued to buckle under its own weight, arguments began over who was responsible. Finally, it was concluded that work should stop, but it was too late. 
for at the same time that these prominent engineers declared work should be halted, another huge steel delivery arrived in Quebec. It was the steel that broke the crossing's back. The bridge let out an enormous roar, heard from as far as six miles away. 17,000 tonnes of steel plummeted into the river in less than 20 seconds, taking 86 construction workers with it. 75 of these men were killed. An investigation found that the structure was incapable of supporting its own weight. The dead load was 30% greater than the design calculations predicted, but not a single engineer had noticed. Five years later, and with the need for a bridge still weighing on the business community, a new, more robust design was put forward and a new construction method was to be pioneered. Instead of building the bridge in situ piece by piece, the central span would be built off-site and lifted in, a method that proved to be ahead of its time. But the tragic story of the bridge was not yet over. As spectators gathered on the riverbank to watch the 5,000-ton central span being hoisted into place, Catastrophe struck again, a bearing failed, and the bridge plummeted into the river. Thirteen people died. It was only on its third attempt that the bridge was finally completed. The year was 1917. The Quebec Bridge tragedy was still a topic of fierce discussion when three years later, in 1920, the past presidents of Canada's Institution of Engineering and Technology gathered for their annual dinner. The conversation centred on the need for engineers to unite in understanding the responsibility that came with their profession, to protect constructors and users from harm. President Hubert Holtain reached out to someone he thought could create a ritual or oath to bind engineers and instil in them their duty of care. He turned to English journalist and novelist Rudyard Kipling. October 18th, 1923, Toronto, Canada. Dear Sir, I crave your attention to the following. The Engineering Institute of Canada was founded in 1887 and is representative of all the branches of engineering in Canada. It is a dignified body and active. At the retiring president's dinner, a year ago there were present six past presidents. Mr. J.M.R. Fairburn, chief engineer of the CPR, was the president in the chair. At that dinner, these seven past presidents were constituted a body to draw up some form of words that the young graduate in engineering could accept and learn by heart, something in the form of an oath or creed or part of a ritual, representing his becoming a member of the tribe. Everybody present thought it was a good thing. The seven past presidents were quite in earnest in their intention to tackle the problem seriously. The situation as it exists at the present time is indicated by the enclosed letter from Mr. Fairburn. We are a tribe, a very important tribe within the community, but we are lacking in tribal spirit, or perhaps I should say, a manifestation of a tribal spirit. Also, we are inarticulate. Can you help us? Yours faithfully, H.E.T. Haltine, Professor of Mining Engineering. 
PS, under separate cover, I send a copy of the last issue of the Journal of the EIC. Kipling replied very quickly. Batemans, Burwash, Sussex, 9th of November, 1923. Dear Sir, your letter of October the 19th has been duly received. The enclosed is the result which I send you in strictest confidence. My own idea would be to make the ritual binding and unalterable, except by the authority of the seven past presidents of the Engineering Institute of Canada, who, co-opting as need arises, would be responsible for the landmarks of the calling. The obligation, I prefer that word to oath, is, as you will see, fairly comprehensive and should always stand as it is written. The larger part of the working would be, naturally, obligating graduates in engineering immediately after they had taken their degrees or before they embarked on their career. In that case, where numbers are involved, the ceremony could be cut down to the mere administration of the obligation to each man, followed by the charge delivered to them collectively by the senior engineer. You will note that I have provisionally entitled that officer Senior Supervising Engineer, but that title can be changed or adapted as necessary to the customs and grades of the engineers in the Dominion. The full ritual, which only takes a few minutes, could be given in the case of candidates who, for any reason, preferred to be obligated by their own teachers and professors at a dinner of their intimates. I prefer this, as a boy remembers from a long time, standing up and taking his vows before his betters and his equals. So much for the college side of work. But it has occurred to me that many young engineers, and even older ones, out struggling in the world, would find it both tonic and refreshing to be obligated. It might be possible then for Camp One, the Engineering Institute of Canada, to empower the establishment of other camps at universities or to give authority to well-known heads of the profession in various branches to obligate young men who deserve it. The shortness of the ritual allows of its being made a peg on which, after the charge, such an authority could hang a really serious and interesting discourse. Men of several years' seniority, whose edge and morale were blunting under the stress of life, might feel grateful in every way for being obligated by such a man in the presence of their companions and fellow workers. I can imagine the idea taking hold and spreading through the Dominion and even the Empire as a sort of general screwing up of things seen and unseen. Would you be good enough to let me have your opinion and the opinion of the seven past presidents on what I have submitted, and do me the favour of charging them to hold the matter absolutely confidential. Very sincerely yours, Rudyard Kipling. Today this ritual is overseen by an organisation called the Corporation of the Seven Wardens. The original corporation, the Seven Wardens, was set up by uh, seven original members of the Engineering Institute of Canada in the uh, 1920s. This is Leonard Shara, who we spoke to in Canada by phone, so apologies for the sound quality here. Leonard is the chief warden. Seven is a kind of a big name for us. There are always seven engineers at the corporate level 
of the Corporation of the Seven Wardens. This has now spread to 27 what are called camps. These camps represent the corporation nationwide. Wherever there's an accredited engineering degree programme in Canada, there's a camp with its own corporation of seven wardens. Over the course of discussions, deliberations of these seven members, somebody kicked around the idea, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have some kind of ceremony that would help unite our profession in an even stronger bond in some way similar to what the Hippocratic Oath in the medical profession does for doctors. The Hippocratic Oath is one of the oldest professional pledges in history. Doctors recognise that their profession carries a special responsibility to society and commit to stay abreast of the best practice, advance new knowledge for the benefit of others to work within the limits of their competence, respect the privacy of patients and provide appropriate treatment, to work towards prevention of disease, recognising that this is preferable to cure and crucially face their awesome responsibility with humility and never play God. So it was that kind of sentiment and hope that they would be able to create some kind of, I guess you could use the word brotherhood even, Uh, Of course, what they did create uh, now has lasted almost 100 years. Today, engineers must still design and construct complex infrastructure without putting those who build it and use it in harm's way. But they also have a duty to address other types of risk, like stopping the spread of COVID-19, protecting the environment from pollution, ensuring that infrastructure projects don't exclude or disadvantage anyone, and tackling the causes and effects of climate change. Emma Crichton is Head of Engineering at charity Engineers Without Borders, who are on a mission to embed global responsibility into engineering and bring the world back from the tipping point of climate change. I think it's important to look at the impact that we have collectively. So in the UK, over 50% of greenhouse gases are linked to engineering industries. So we know that we have a part to play um, and we've achieved amazing things in the past with engineering and human development and there's a great opportunity there to pull on that expertise, that robustness, that problem-solving skill set to actually help solve problems for all people on our planet. This means doing things differently and prioritising the climate emergency within the problems that engineers are solving. Engineering needs to take a critical look at itself and understand that what we've been doing as an industry and the way we've been doing things for the last hundred plus years has got us to this point. We need new approaches to get further because engineers are so fundamental in ensuring that people live healthy lives and we need to get our heads in gear and stop focusing on only vanity projects and start focusing on our responsibility as engineers and I think that is an ethical responsibility. The world's tallest building, the Burj Dubai for example, is an engineering marvel, standing over 800 metres tall. But it took 330,000 cubic metres of concrete to build it. The main ingredient of concrete, cement, is responsible for 8% of all carbon emissions. It's quite remarkable what engineering can achieve. But I think in terms of the diversity of what can we do with that brain power, that expertise? Could we take some of the attention that say projects like that get and refocus that resource, whether it's money or brains or 
an understanding of how we approach problems, kind of taking it back and scoping out again what is needed and what are the diverse perspectives that we need in a space of working out is a problem worth solving. It sounds like engineering needs new vision and this is something that academics at Leeds University's Idea Centre have been working on. This is Dr Jim Baxter, who leads the university's professional ethics consultancy team. The four key elements of the vision that we produced are, number one, growing and strengthening the profession. So that's bringing engineers under the umbrella of the profession so that you know what they're doing in terms of CPD, you know what code of ethics they're following and so on. Uh, the second one is ethical competence. So efforts to improve engineer skills, their ethical skills, ethical reasoning skills, so their ability to recognise issues, analyse them, and then come up with an effective, justified response to them. The third element is responsible innovation. So we want engineers to recognise and act on their responsibilities. And the fourth area is uh, sustainability and specifically climate change. So we think engineers should be leading the way because their work, first of all, is in areas that are having a, a a profound impact on the environment and they are also potentially part of solutions uh, that are being developed to those issues as well. Strengthening the profession as a whole is considered to be the most important objective because many issues are just too big to be tackled if the profession doesn't act together. My personal view is that most of the important ethical issues in engineering really need to be tackled at the collective level because they're just they are essentially collective action problems. Such as the climate emergency. This is Dr Rob Lawler, also from Leeds, who you might remember from episode 17, Acting on Climate Change. You need people to act as a collective. You need a collective commitment to, to reducing use of fossil fuels. Just individuals making their own individual commitments to work in a certain way is unlikely to be effective. And you know, there's, there's lots of research on that that just highlights why that's not going to be an effective route. The first step, which I think I hadn't realized when I first started down this line of research, is I think the profession needs to be stronger. I don't think it's a strong enough profession at the moment. Leeds vision could be seen as a call to arms. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a great supporter of the work that Leeds are doing. This is Dr Peter Bonfield, the 138th President of the Institution of Engineering and Technology, which is the UK's largest professional engineering body. Peter has placed ethical engineering practice at the heart of his presidency. Our prime responsibility as a professional engineering institution is to ensure that our members, in IET's case 170,000 people, professionals who operate around the world, are doing so with competence, um, with good ethics, so that society is protected and that the, the solutions they come up with work and protect society. Peter sees some ethical challenges arising from renewed austerity and from rapid social, economic and technical change. It's absolutely essential actually that we don't focus on the cheapest. You must ensure um, quality is there alongside costs, so the overall value and the way in which people are protected works well. So, you know, we're in a continual quest to, to battle um, austerity type measures and cost cutting measures to make sure that things are done well. And then the second thing is, of course, the world's changing. We're in the world of digital futures, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. There are whole new ways of 
uh, engineering solutions that are coming into the marketplace that impact people all around the world in practically every sector. It's essential that the ethics underpin those technologies and the way they're applied, and it's essential that the competency of the people operating them are fit for purpose and are doing the right thing by societies in the UK and around the world. To enable this, Peter created a Concordat that requires businesses to commit to ethical engineering. The CEOs of more than 50 companies, including McDonald, have signed up so far. By signing the Concordat, companies confirm that their staff are registered, valued and committed to the ongoing development of their own competence. It is utterly essential that these registered members that work in companies are given time to keep on top of their technical things they need to be expert in. They need to be volunteers, they need to be mentored, they need to go and do continuing professional development. So it reaffirms the commitment or it strengthens the commitment of the CEO of the company to require and support their engineers and registered professionals to keep on top of their game. Being a competent professional also includes exercising ethical judgment. So to operate within your degree of competency, to always do the right thing, to have zero tolerance of things you know aren't right, to put your hand up if you're not sure about something and seek help. Being able to speak up about ethical issues and take a stand is a critical part of empowering engineers to perform their role. With 17,000 employees all over the world, consultant Mark McDonald has been working hard to develop a culture where there's space for ethical discussion. And as promised, here is Mike Haig again. So we have processes in place that deal with the very clear guidelines. So things like we won't work on a coal-fired power station, for example. That's a very clear guideline. It's covered by our processes. And so it's, it's pretty much impossible for anyone to decide to, to do that sort of um, work. There are other types of projects, however, that may not be quite so um, clear-cut. Which means that staff involved in bidding for projects need help deciding whether it's right to pursue certain prospects. They also need to know that sometimes it's necessary to say no. And so what we have is a process during the, the bidding of a, of a project or the looking at a prospect to ask questions about whether or not there are ethical issues with, um, with that project or, or they aren't. And we train our staff in understanding ethical issues. So we, we have e-learning modules that, that cover ethics, of, of course, but also climate change and climate resilience. So that when people are looking at projects and, and they go through the process of recognizing that there is a potentially an ethical issue or a sustainability, sustainability issue on a project, then that issue has to be raised um, to a higher authority in the organisation, including our group's sustainability manager, so that we can then have a conversation about the project at a more senior level to decide whether we believe that it's, it's appropriate for us or, or not appropriate. I asked Mike what would happen in practice if I decided to resume my rather short engineering career and then found myself questioning the ethics of a project that was worth a lot of money to the business, but felt wrong from a sustainability perspective. So what I would absolutely um, want for an individual who has concerns or worries about something that they're doing is that they feel empowered to, to talk about it within their team. And that empowerment comes from the top. The most important thing here is that leaders in any organisation are living and breathing the principles of sustainability and, um, and, and, and climate change and talking about them, uh, talking about 
ethics in the industry such that it becomes normal in an office environment to be able to have these conversations. Having conversations is one thing, but turning work away is another. In an age of austerity, is this realistic? So we had a, an example recently where a team were looking at a, at a project that wasn't power stations, but it, it did have to do with the movement of coal. And that team actually decided, even though it wasn't strictly um, against our policy, they decided that in the um, in the context of the policy and the context of the of the understanding, the training that they that they'd had, they decided that this was something that they wouldn't um, they wouldn't bid for. So you're moving beyond process into behaviour. This is not Mike's first rodeo. As a water engineer who's worked on projects since the 1980s, he's had his own fair share of personal ethical dilemmas from dam projects to cigarette factories, which again, the company decided not to bid for. I think that as engineers and planners, um, people that are developing schemes like this, I think the most important thing is, is that you start on day one thinking about ethics. Um, and the ethics of what you're doing. So there's no doubt that something like hydropower, yeah, for sure, it's um, it's renewable energy. But there will be issues around environment. There will be issues around potentially issues around communities and, and and so on. And and the most important thing is from day one, those are being taken seriously, and they're not being pushed to one side simply because renewable energy is a good thing. This is great to hear. But only a small percentage of engineering businesses have signed the IET's Concord Act or placed ethical competence high on their agenda. Rob Lawler from the University of Leeds would like to see all engineering institutions stepping up, setting the expectation that members will practice ethically through stronger language in the professional codes of conduct. He particularly wants institutions to address the ethics around climate change. The absence of wording that explicitly empowers members to take an ethical stand leaves them in a weaker position, he says. At the moment, there are very strong disincentives that prevent engineers from acting more sustainably, even when they want to. And I mean, the most obvious disincentive is, is the threat of being sacked. So if an engineer is asked to work on something that they believe is to the detriment of society or the environment, say a coal-fired power station or a multi-well pad for fracking, then in many organisations, they don't have the power to refuse. And I think that's, again, that's an area where professional institutions can really empower engineers because if the professional institutions say, as a profession, we're committed to this, you know, and if they then spell out a bit more detail of what that means and say what they expect of engineers, then it's no longer an engineer just having their own personal concern about what their bosses are them to. So, so again, imagine I'm an engineer. It's no longer a case of me saying to my boss, I don't really want to do that because it goes against my personal feelings. And, and that all sounds a bit weak from, from my boss's point of view. And indeed, they might just think I'm not doing my job. But I'm in a much more powerful situation if I can say, my profession won't allow me to do this. It, you know, I'll be struck off if, if I do what you want me to do. It involves taking a far wider and longer term view of projects than engineers are used to. Considering the effects of construction and operation on people and the environment, potentially many decades into the future. Think about greenhouse gas emissions. CO2 produced in Britain 200 years ago persists in the atmosphere today, contributing to global warming and sea level rises that threaten to consume the Maldives. If institutions required engineers to ethically consider the impact of each project, to weigh risk holistically, 
practice the principles of doing no harm and safeguard society, that would enable engineers to challenge without fear. Mott McDonald's Chief Technical Officer Mark Enzer was lead author for a paper, Flourishing Systems, published by the Centre for Digital Built Britain in May, setting out a big-picture view of the built and natural environment that also demands a different approach from engineers. So I think it's really important to see infrastructure as a system of systems that provides this essential foundation for human flourishing. And when talk about making people's lives better, clearly that has to be in the context of um, of the environment. Uh, and so, so I think that that enables us uh, to see that outcomes for people, so economic, social, environmental outcomes, uh, becomes the purpose of this amazing machine that we've created, this system of systems. Shannon Chance is a visiting professor at UCL in London. She's been researching what early career engineers think of the global responsibility that Emma mentioned, and more specifically, how engineers value and enact different aspects of ethics in their day-to-day work. What we noticed was that even when early career engineers do see opportunities to do something in a better way, a more responsible way, they have trouble getting the idea accepted most times. And that's because time and cost are seen as most important. Shannon found that these engineers were able to impact things such as material selection, but a lot of decisions around environmental and social impacts were beyond their influence. Even if they did highlight opportunities to improve performance, the client was only interested if it saved money or time. The one area where engineers did feel empowered was site safety. One of the most important findings of our study was that engineers felt empowered to act in one specific area, and that was job site health and safety. They didn't feel as empowered to act in other areas about environmental and social sustainability. According to the UK's health and safety executive, in 1990 there were 154 fatalities on construction sites in the UK. By 2019, this had fallen to 30. It's still too many, but it's the lowest that it's ever been. I lived through that particular health and safety revolution, so I saw it, I guess, firsthand. As well as being chairperson for Centre for Digital Built Britain, which is on a mission to transform infrastructure to be smarter and more digital, Mark is both a civil engineer and a chemical engineer. He worked on site for a construction contractor just at the time that health and safety needed transformation. A young engineer out on, on site thinking that it's it's not very safe to walk across a, um, a, a plank over some manhole and there's some rebar at the bottom of the manhole uh, and people just look at you and say, just man up, just go, you know, just get on with it. And you think, well, if that's how you do things around here, I better, I better fit in. A situation that today would be considered completely unacceptable. And actually, I remember being on a site when somebody did fall off a plank and a bit of rebar went through his neck. So, you, you know, there's real examples as to why that kind of thing needs to be spoken about. Uh, but if there's a culture that doesn't allow you to, to do that or just kind of forces you to fit in with doing things which are not right, then, you know, there's a hugely strong pressure on, on humans to, to fit in with everyone around them. And if, if the pressure is to fit in with doing something that's wrong, people fit in with that. If the pressure is to fit in with something that's right, then we're all pointing in the same direction. New legislation, regulation, contract requirements and personal responsibilities combined with the recognition that accidents cost time and money and that safety is a proxy for wider project performance. All of this combined to make construction sites safer. That change, to create pressure for something that was right and to get everyone pointing in the same direction, occurred at three levels. 
industry level, organisational level and an individual level. And I, I guess you don't really get that revolution unless all three of those levels are, are pulling together. So, so certainly when you, when you start introducing huge ethical issues of our time, uh, like what do we do with climate change and you know, what, what's our part to, to play in it, it, it feels like it needs that, um, that whole sector top to bottom response that would make it feel like a revolution rather than just a few individuals doing their own thing. How do you start a revolution? You need to equip people with information and know-how and create a permissive culture. Here's Jim Baxter from Leeds again, defining ethical competence. One way you could define it would be as the ability to recognise, analyse and respond effectively to the ethical issues that arise in your job. So the first part of that would just be an awareness that there are ethical issues there, that as an engineer you aren't just someone who is given a technical problem, solves that technical problem and that's where your responsibility ends. You've got to see your job as having an ethical dimension to it. Defining ethical competence needs to happen from universities into workplaces through continuous professional development, supported by professional institutions. And as to what that CPD would look like, well, I think the essential thing is to kind of put people in in difficult hypothetical situations and ask them how they would react. So case study based training is, is very effective. We started this episode in Canada. There, engineers have a daily reminder of their duty of care in the form of an iron ring that engineers are awarded when they graduate from university. There's a popular myth that the rings are made from the material salvaged from the collapsed Quebec Bridge. That's not so, but there is a link. The connection to the bridge collapse is that Camp 10 in Quebec City was able to retrieve uh, a bunch of rivets from that collapsed bridge. And one rivet from, uh, was sent to every single camp across the country. And this rivet has been inserted, uh, welded into the chain that is used in every ceremony in every camp. During the ceremony, the chain is connected to an anvil and all graduates take hold of it as they take the oath and receive their ring. Well, the chain represents the constant, endless and unbroken link between all engineers and these new graduating engineers and all the ones that came before them, also represented by the senior supervising engineer. I myself have been the senior on many occasions. And it's a wonderful experience to, you know, put your hand on that anvil and have everybody picking up the chain and then swearing the oath of obligation. Um, and then they all uh, receive their rings from, from either a colleague, a professor, somebody experienced in the field. Often it's they're a family member, a wonderful thing to get a ring from your uncle or aunt or mother or grandfather. So it's, um, it's a very wonderful experience. Each ring has 26 facets, representing the complexity of an engineer's work. It is worn on the pinky of the working hand. And, you know, typically when you're writing or, or even or typing or whatever, the reminder is always there of your oath of obligation. And that's... A very important element. 
Leonard says that 99% of graduating engineers in Canada take this oath and that today there's over 500,000 iron ring wearing engineers in Canada, reminding them of just how badly things can go wrong if engineers do not stand by fundamental ethical and behavioural principles. At the tail end of the 19th century, engineers should have paid attention to structural deformations as warnings of impending structural collapse. Well into the 21st century, we can see a multitude of signs that our environment and society are under stress. Engineers have played a giant role in shaping the world as it is now and have a high degree of control over its development. This is why it's so important that as, a, as an industry, we really start thinking about not, not what's happening in the next five years, but, but the next 10 years and the next um, 20 years. So again, you know, without labouring the point about, about the need for industry to kind of come together to, um, to, to look at these solutions to help government, because a lot of this stuff is, is going to sit at a, at a government or a regional um, kind of level. Um, I think now is the time for, um, for engineers, scientists, um, owners, operators, designers to be coming together to, to start to envisage what the future may look like and what investment looks like in order to achieve that future. A future that's sustainable for generations to come. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited by Alex Conacher and Andrew Melius, sound engineering by John Young, and our ethical producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Mott McDonald, the Idea Centre at Leeds University, the IET and Engineers Without Borders. Thank you for listening. You can hear us on all podcast apps on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and you can share us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter.